Hello. We have special guests with us today. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it has to be really kind of whispery and, and airy, so I don't know what it's okay. Are you doing some ASMR? Yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> you should get like some, like, just tap your fingernail. Yep, it's going like this. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara ong Associate Director at the Madison Center, and today we have some very special guests with us. I'm very excited to talk about civic engagement through hip-hop with Assistant Professor Jarrett Ahmed Scheel from the Berkeley College of Music. Welcome, Dr. Scheel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. And also, I have a special co-host today. It's Dr. Jesse Rathgeber. Hi. I'm, I'm also happy to be here, clearly. <laughs> and he's currently an assistant professor in the School of Music at James Madison University, although we just discovered he's going to be leaving us, and I'm shedding some tears. Uh, we can shed tears later at okay. the end of the uh, of the semester. <laughs> well, we're going to power and soldier on and do all the great work we can do before then. So, uh, Dr. Scheel. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how W. Dubois, W. E. Dubois, has influenced your work and your thinking. Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think when I was younger, I didn't understand um, what he was, what the book meant when he wrote *The Souls of Black Folk*, and I didn't realize, you know, because he was so disconnected from me, like time-wise, um, what he was in terms of uh, um, molding my current or then current existence as a person of color and what black thought was and, you know, image and identity. And so <clears throat> when I look at W.E.B. and I, I, I think about his book and I think about his writing, I think he's just like wrestling with what it is to be black in America, but not just to define it for himself, but to showcase that for everybody else. And I think what's so important about that is because he gets in this idea of like ethnography and narrative and like case study, right? And so he's laying out this really well-developed story to everybody else about who he and all these other people are, but through the words of those people and showing facts. And I think that's really like a hip hop thing. Um, because it's, if it's coming out of black culture and it's coming out of that development of like the products that come out of culture, like, you know, art and music and dance and food and clothes, and it's all like a participant or like a product, then it's definitely got to be connected in, in some way. It's always a through line somewhere. So it's like this telling of narrative of like marginalization on the corner and the margins. And, and there are a lot of parallels between those two. And I think he was also very forthright. He also um, changes his opinion later in his career about some things. I and mean, he talks about communism after he kind of critiques um, capitalism. He also uh, moves back to Africa. You know, um, he talks about uh, women's issues because he has his daughter he really loves. And, um, and so he was speaking a lot about things in um, past tense, but about what could happen in the future. And that's really, to me, what the connection between him and hip-hop are. You know, like, share this message, but also, like, describe what's going to happen in the near future. And plus, this book is like a mixtape to me, because at the beginning, it's like each has a sorrow song. And it's like, 
That's, and it followed with all this rich, deep prose. Sounds like a mixtape a little bit to me, you know, so. So uh, one of the things I've been wondering about is, and you've mentioned it a couple times throughout some of uh, the the presentations you've been given here this week is um, the notion of um, the veil yeah. and, and what um, perhaps you could kind of inform some of the listeners who are unfamiliar with that concept mm-hmm. and also what the veil might mean in relationship to contemporary um, issues of race, class, gender, um, disability uh, um, on a college campus or, or more broadly in a democratic society. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good one. That's a really great question. Um, Well, in the book, he talks about this idea of double consciousness, and I think we all encounter that in some way. Um, In his conversation about double consciousness, he's saying, like, as a person of color in America at the end of the Civil War, going into the 20th century, you feel as though you have to code switch all the time, and now it's a term for it. But now, back in the day, it was just like, I feel like I am forced to be two different people. So there's the person me at home in my community, and I, you know, probably it's more of my authentic self. And then there's the person that I have to be a performative thing in a space in which I'm marginalized and I'm not accepted at, as part of the group. And so there's this veil that exists that, like, we walk across and it, like, separates these worlds and what trauma that causes people. And when we have trauma and, and we're in a group of people who don't know how to deal with or have any type of mechanism to deal with that trauma, it creates long-lasting ripples, and that goes throughout generations. And so he talks about this idea, but it's very important today because I think we're living in a space where there's multiple veils. I mean, it's they've always existed. I mean, there's a veil about sexuality, there's a veil about gender, there's a veil about uh, socioeconomic classes. I mean, there's so many veils and they separate us and these are like boxes that um, the powerful or those in control use to subvert power from those who really have it. Because, you know, power is kind of a construct. And so this veil is something that we should rip. And there's a part in the Bible where, you know, and I'm not using this to say that, you know, Du Bois was a, a, a biblical scholar, but he worked at Wilberforce, which is like a Methodist school. And so, you know, in the Bible, it's, it says, if you know anything about the veil in the church, it ripped yeah. from the bottom up, which is amazing because nothing ever rips like that. So that means that there's something where it's to tear down and never be seen again. And I think that's important because Du Bois is sharing the narratives of the bottom the grassroots, the norm, the people, the folk, to try to rip the veil to show you that, like, look, there's no reason why we're different. The only difference is we make the difference. And so this veil should be ripped down. And so um, getting back to that, just to say that there's these veils that exist. And so my job, I think, within what I do with my teaching is to kind of, like, try to get rid of the veil, set it on fire, rip it down, tear it down, upend it, decenter, delocate, disrupt the system so that there's no veil. And it's it's a long-term process, and hopefully I'm working. I do work with a lot of different people, but hopefully the work I do with the students is most important because they're the ones that are going to go forward and destroy all those things. And I, 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 that's kind of my hope and goal every time I go to a, do a presentation or um, teach a class. I think that's, like, super important. 
can I ask a follow-up on that one? So yeah. one of the things I, I think about as um, through the lens of disability is yeah. this notion of how we construct difference mm -hmm. and how we can level those differences, which is kind of what you were, were just saying. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm conflicted in that there's also a notion of identity and, and mm -hmm. support and pride, right, mm -hmm. in, in different communities. What is a way that you think that we could, in um, you know, a contemporary democracy like ours, uh, help to level these kinds of differences, these constructed differences, to, to remove the veils in, in, in powerful ways, while also understanding the importance of the identity aspect of that? Or does that go away once we have all of, um, once we have a veilless or a, a barrierless society? I don't think it'll ever go away. I think just that there's just things that are just like located in this that are come out of the experience of survival, I think that are just human things um, and even though that's something that's within us we have to endeavor to overcome it um, I think that it'll always be there because I mean it's, it's been there since the beginning of humanity so I don't know if it ever disappear I think that's the reason why we create policies and laws to affect change so that we affect like how we operate with one another and so maybe how we operate with each other will ultimately changes in that will change how we think and maybe how we think will change what we do right um on the other end of that when you say like ask me the question which was a good question i think that by sharing narrative is the biggest thing i think we when we talk about differences we put difference on people because we've never asked them who they are what they think, what they want, what they like. And so we put a lot of con like pretext on them. And if we ask them and we open up a space where we could talk and we could know each other, then it's harder to. Not saying that it's not easy to, to be biased and stereotype and be prejudiced, but it's a lot harder to know somebody's name and do dirt. It's a lot harder to have walked in their, a mile in their shoes through a story or know their family. It's a lot harder to, I mean, if you do, then you're really causing a lot of trauma to yourself because I think that causes you in your mind to have to go against the, the notion of what you know is right, civility. Like, I feel bad for people who do hate crimes because I'm like, you're doing a lot of hurt to other people, but you must be doing massive trauma to yourself within yourself. So this idea of difference, I think it'd go, uh, 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 not away, but like be abated by like sharing narrative in a way where the person who is supposed to be the other side of the difference person um, um, or the person that differs, if I know more about them, from them, instead of me trying to collect data on them, because that can be so skewed. I think we all understand how numbers and things work. Like, you know, math people know that, because, like, yeah, it's 60%. And I'm like, yeah, but it's it's 40% that did not. So, like, which is the more important number, the 40% that actually did the thing that I'm interested in or the 60% that did not? And how will we make something generalizable that's based on our perception of the data? Not a, a psychologist, but it just seems like I think we're worried that we're not good enough or maybe that somebody's better or by them doing well. Like, in the street, they might call it shine. Like, everybody can shine, but a lot of times poverty mindsets make, makes you think that in order for Jesse to do well, Jared cannot. You know, it's very much within the wheelhouse of making things and being a consumer versus being a producer. Because if you're producing, you don't really care. You're just so into your thing. 
you're into like, I want to make the best whatever widget because like, I really want to do a good job instead of I just want to control everybody by making these widgets, which is something totally different. Like I'd rather be a proud widget maker any day, which I don't know who makes widgets, but I'd rather be a proud maker of that than to be saying that I am the most, the largest exporter of widgets. Like, who cares? Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. great, you're making money and it's a widget, but you don't need to control all people through your widgets. Which, if you know what a widget is, it's still like a little thing and it works together. Anyways. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my thought about that. But, yeah. Thanks. You've said a number of really important things today. One, I um, I loved your definition of democracy, um, mm. which <laughs> maybe you could talk a little bit more about. Democracy is ruled by the people, not ruling the people. Of the people, yeah. 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 And so I wonder if um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how we get to rule by the people because we don't really have that. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have that, you know, do we have democracy? Yeah, um, we had a really important stage in American democracy um, in which our engagement is, um, I would say, at at this moment now, I think our engagement because of fear of climate change and disasters and pandemics is going to be at a high over the last two decades. This next voter turnout, it's supposed to be one of the largest. I think people are afraid instead of empowered. So a lot of the reactions are going to be, I can't lose, and so therefore I'm going to engage. Um, But that's not ruled by the people. That's somebody offering you um, an opportunity change because they hold the solution. I got the answers. Vote for me, as opposed to people saying that I want to be the main change maker. And so not just am I going to vote federally, I'm going to vote statewide, and then I'm going to vote locally, and then I'm going to be involved, and I'm going to go to the meetings, and I'm going to uh, do voter drives, and I'm going to... Well, we don't have enough people doing that because they don't feel empowered. Like, that's nothing I can do. I'm apathetic because I've been told over the last 20 years that, like, young people don't care. If you say it enough, people believe it. Young people are, 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 are not knowledgeable enough about government. Well, if you strip school programs of civic education, um, then they won't know. You know, if you have only one government class of your 12 years in school, but you've had math that you might not ever use again once you cross the threshold and sh- shake the hand of the principal. That's so interesting to me, but you're going to be a voter for the rest of your life unless you go to prison and we strip you of your your rights. Even though you're still human and a citizen, you did something wrong, but you come out and then there's all these people that can't even engage and then you wonder why they're disconnected because we forced them to be instead of welcoming people back. And it's so funny to me. Not to say that I want all killers and murderers to be like, yeah, and you know, but like, why not? If they're not if they're not being able to be rehabilitated, why bring them back and be involved? And if we're not going to welcome them back, then, like, is this really a democracy? Because they're still people. I think they're still people, right? 
And so there's this like rule of the people and how we put these little weird particular categories on each other and separate ourselves because somebody wants to rule us. And it's very like, it seems very authoritarian many times. Whereas if grassroots going up where the people are ruling themselves and telling the governor, government what to do, things would be so awesome. You know, I, I just, I, I have to believe that. You know, uh, Ilhan Omar, representative from the great state of Minnesota, um, Somali woman, probably could be my cousin because I'm half Somali. And she made a comment on Twitter this morning, which was, when there's a pandemic, everybody thinks that uh, healthcare for all is way better than before because now people don't have health insurance and there's a pandemic. So it seems doable now, right? Or at least you're way more interested. And that's rule, that's rule by the people. If you say enough, there's enough spirit behind it. We're going to tell them what we want because that's really what government's supposed to do. It's supposed to be working for us and not us for them. It's so weird. Students feel like they come to college because they're supposed to do something for the professor when actually teaching is a service industry in which I'm supposed to be helping you by providing a service to facilitate your learning. And if I don't do a job, you're not supposed to necessarily call me out, but you can ask for anything at any point. And it's not me telling you what to turn into me. It's me going, but we're creating this together so that you create a great learning environment. And that's kind of like what government should be is these people are supposed to be facilitators of change for us based on us saying narrative-wise what our needs are. But when those people on top who are making the money who are like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job because if I don't do my job well, so then I have to create this situation where I'm in control and empower the people and tell them what to, to do because I went to school for four years and I have a degree in blah, blah, blah. And then I'm telling you, you don't know enough, and let me strip this educational program so that you are not able to advocate or have agency for yourself. And so it's like such a weird, peculiar like system, and uh, it's not supposed to work like that. I don't have to look back to the founders. I can look just literally at the document and know Socrates and Plato and know that like that's not how it's supposed to happen. But even Plato said it's, it's a fallacy because... Democracy always marginalized somebody, and even though that we all voted, somebody, even though that's not how civics and government and democracy is supposed to work, we don't care, take care of the marginalized. We go, you lost. I've not won my democracy check yet. Like, I've not gotten it in the mail. Like, and get like a rebate check. Like, you got your democracy. Look, you won. You, you know, like your candidate won. I, I don't understand why that is. It's like we're not against each other. And it's almost like people are trying to replay the Civil War again. Yeah. Like, there's this group and there's that group, and we're not together. But, like, who's saying that? Is it the people? Or is it somebody shooting rhetoric into the crowd, and then we go, yeah, I hate them. Who are they? I don't know. <laughs> but we hate them. They said we should hate them. All right, cool. So. Well, maybe we can talk uh, about hip hop and like the role that hip hop as a culture um, plays in generating, in sustaining, um, in challenging um, democratic institutions. Uh, I know that's some of the things that you've been talking about. And so um, maybe you could share some of that right now. Yeah, I mean, hip hop is a rebellious uh, effort attitude kind of um, culture. 
because, you know, it's like very much like punk rock because people have been fed a bunch of, um, as Joe Biden would say, malarkey for a long time. And so after a while, you get, you know, if you have to eat chicken nuggets all your life, at some point, you are going to rebel. I have a three-year-old, and he's tired of eating chicken nuggets. And, oh, you know, you have different ways. You hide them. You throw them away when somebody's not looking, or you just, like, have a tantrum or whatever. And that's exactly what people in the government, you know, in, in, in America do or in the world. And I think there's a point where there was, like, a catalytic moment in that borough because of the different marginalizations. Because all those people weren't, like, super poor. They were just marginalized. And so you don't have to be, like, destitute or out on the street to have a, like, come-to-Jesus moment to change. You could literally just be a normal person, having a normal life, and just be fed up with something. And I think all those people had a moment when they wanted the community around them to change, and it seemed like nobody else was going to do it. And so they took it upon themselves to pull themselves up. And then what happened, people judged the, the change because it didn't look the way they wanted it to. And also they had no buy-in because they couldn't control and say that, like, I did this work for you. You owe me. And so the great thing about hip-hop is this rebellious, raucous, revelatory attitude is about pulling my... It's really American because it's pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because you know no one else cares. Not because it's your responsibility or just because it's your right. It's because I have to do the work for myself because I have to love myself because nobody else will unless I tell them that I'm worthy of it, right? We devalue each other often because, I don't know, like we look at each other and see that there's something that valid in the way you look, the way you sound, what you say. It's an epistemological thing. It's like if you don't know what I know, there's only one truth with a capital T and only one knowledge with a capital K. Um, I just I think it's very funny. So like hip hop says that like all of these things can coexist and you can have your own style and you can be different, but you're still within the dynamic of the culture and you could... Uh, have say these conflictory things and still be doing something positive and I think that's reality of the whole thing the reality is that we none of us are perfect and none of us do right things all the time and sometimes we're wrong and we have to say grow up or glow up and say like oh well, you know I changed and I'm I'm different and like when you look at hip-hop scholars which I mean the rappers and the DJs and the producers and the graph writers and the b-boys and the break dancers and all that stuff I'm not just talking about people writing books they are the ones that show us that change can happen Nipsey Hussle showed us that change could happen in a person and it can get back to their community and they could have done Horrible things maybe before, but like, guess what? We can forgive, and then they can still be part of the dynamic of changing the culture and the landscape of how we live. And so I love when I look at Jay-Z, and he was once a crack dealer, and he's now a billionaire who owns a half a basketball company, a live nation, and rock nation, and all these different things, but he also gives hundreds of, me well, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, of scholarships away every year. And there's all of these little grassroots things that he does. And all of them, in some way, do some type of giving back, whether it's putting on 100 people in their community to, like, economically uh, progress versus, like, just taking all of it for themselves. I can benefit and then give back. And we all can grow up. And we all can glow up. Um, so I, that's one of the things I love about hip-hop. And also it's a very future-forward kind of thing in which... 
even though I'm poor, I can talk. I can envision myself. I can imagine. I can be creative in how I talk about my narrative. Instead of just saying that I am destitute, I'm saying that I'm rich beyond measure. Even though I only have one pair of shoes in the in the apartment right now, or I only have ramen noodles I'm going to eat tonight, or maybe my dad just lost his job, or maybe. Like I can envision myself to be the best version of myself. Like that's dope. Instead of just uh, meditating on the negative, and I think that is like a great tool to give students to share narrative to talk about the hardships, but also to say like, what would you like your life to be like, and to see that happen. That's the real great sharing of text for me. Um, whether you're writing it, whether you're dancing, whether you're drawing it, whether you're embodying it, any of that stuff. So one of the things among many that you've talked about (laughs) at JMU um, is how sort of the we have our own channels now that we can go to. So that relates to our own affinities and our own identities. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about how our modes of consumption of news and music uh, have really contributed to a breakdown, I think, in our ability to collectively solve problems, which is what how we define civic engagement. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I think when I was growing up in the 80s, like I was born in 76, so uh, for the listeners, I'm 43 going on 44. It's important because at that time period, there was just the radio, you know, KISS 107 point whatever, you know, Hot 105, Power 97, whatever the name of the radio station is, and they would play a variety of music. So, like, I grew up listening to Michael Jackson and the Beastie Boys and um, uh, Eurythmics and Annie Lennox and all these different people as a kid because they were all being played on the same radio station. There was no, like, hip-hop station. There was no country station. There was no rock. It was just, like, you listen to a variety of music. And so what happened is somewhere somebody's like... I think it would do better with programming if everything was the same. And we played it up that every man, person, woman, child that is in this group listens to that radio station. And so then I put them in a category. And I need this other phenotype in this group and over here and playing this music and and your own TV stations and things. And somebody shared the idea that it was about representation, but it was about a very singular view that only was about sharing this narrative, usually not super positive, to that one group and making it seem as no one else existed in the world. So as much as I I like an idea of like seeing stories where the main characters are African-American and only a black cast, that's not like reality. Like Blackish is great, but it's a comedy and I like it. But I think what, what Kingy Burst does well is he puts them in context of the world. Like, he's a black man with an all-black family who's upwardly mobile, but they're also living in the real world where they're all other kind of people, and they deal with those issues. And oftentimes with the music, we don't put it in context like, like as though Cindy Lauper never liked Michael Jackson. So those songs shouldn't belong on the same channel at 2 p.m. in the afternoon when the reality is like, they were probably all playing shows around that time. And they should all be played at the same time, because that's in context, as opposed to like going, well, only Michael Jackson and Usher and Ludacris, and this is black music and only black music, and that's great. I like that. Maybe there should be some channels for that, but I don't think there should be like 
only channels for that, or only channels for white music, or only p channels that uh, uh, work to a certain demographic. Um, and so they sometimes, sometimes, listeners hear me, sometimes separate us as opposed to the narrative of sharing. Because I don't want any hip-hop artist, and I think a lot of the people that you're here on, like the radio as I drive back to Boston today, is going to be artists that all say, I want everybody to listen to my music. I don't, I don't know any hip-hop artist that says, I only want black people to listen to my music. And so that should say something to you that, like, yeah, my story is something I can share with anybody. It's not just for people of color. And so what we talked about this week is the idea of, like, hip-hop is very racialized. And so people disconnect from it because they think only black people can do it. And so then people don't touch it because they think, like, I have to enact blackness and I don't want to act black because maybe black is not great or there's something not right about that but like that's not true because I listen to rock and roll and I'm not white and I don't ever think I've ever tried to um, um, portray myself as a European American I just like rock and roll that's, that's it you know so um, I think those kind of those spaces the way we you're, we're kind of disconnected but we're more connected than ever before but the way that those tools are used are sometimes used to separate us in like really weird ways but young people are not following the market so that's great they're using the tools that people created for something else for totally their own interests so like now most kids they don't they don't use Spotify and they don't use Pandora and they don't use Apple Music they use things that nobody even thought like YouTube, and I'm not talking about YouTube Red. I'm talking about like YouTube and just knowing how to use the channel to play just streams of their music. And I go like, where do you find music? I'm like, oh, I was just watching YouTube for four hours, not even watching it, just playing it in the background. And I'm like, how does that work? And as 44, I can't imagine that to have to cipher through all the different media to find something that works for me that I can control as opposed to you telling me through an algorithm you can only listen to these songs based on the affinity of that song. That algorithm thing is the worst. I thought about that the other day. I was like, the algorithm, I wonder who creates that because, you know, and probably the same people do the face software, and in that face software, if you read the research, is like it only identifies certain people, usually white people, because that's how the program is created, right? Right. And it's similar to the algorithm, I think, often with the music. is not to say just white people, but, like, it's only supposed to recognize, oh, you like Michael Jackson, so you must be black, and therefore we'll only play these sets of songs. You like... Uh, Gwen Stefani, oh, great, no doubt. You only can listen to these songs because you must be... Oh, you listen to Bad Bunny. Oh, you must be Spanish. So, therefore, you can only listen to these songs, but it should be in a context of the time period and the artists that they like, that they perform with, that, you know... And I, I think that's a big problem. Because it's like, if I can control it, I can make money off of it, so... One more question, yeah. just to kind of a. Uh, this is similar to when I was in his uh, seat, uh, talking about um, my work with uh, disability and engagement, and I think you had asked me something about um, what are some ways we can enact the things that you think are important. Um, and so, uh, Jarrett, uh, you've you've been he um, here all week, and um, mm -hmm. so many students have really 
connect with so much of that you've said. And I think oh. that some of the things they connected with ha- are, are not the things that we often think about with hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you were talking about agency and power and, um, and uh, you know, keeping it real, speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. uh, repping your hood. Uh, if you had a vision for a contemporary music education within a de- <laughs> democratic society, Mm-hmm. Um, something that we could start enacting on college campuses and high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, and community centers. What would be just some of that vision? This is a really good question. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time. So um, I, I teach at Berkeley, and so right now we're like doing a lot of research around uh, a major for black American music and or one for hip-hop. And so like I missed the meeting the other day because, you know, I'm here. Um, in that, what I want to say is that I think if I could if I could do the program I wanted, I think I would try to build um, a, a, a more focused program on dealing with trauma. Mm. And in that space, because I think trauma is the number one thing that we don't talk about, and it's one of the most ills that, like, if you, if you don't know how to deal with trauma, there's so many physiological, mental things, that reactions that we have, right? And so... With that, I would create a program around trauma and using hip-hop-based education in which students can then share out narrative. Um, teachers could then respond in a, in a cypher-type way. There's a really great uh, 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 educator by the name of uh, Tony Blackman, and she does a series, uh, Meditation Mixtapes, uh, a lot of trauma-based work. Uh, Ian Levy is another one who writes a lot about it. Um, in schools, and they use the, the, the tool of a cipher, um, you know, around this conversation. So, like a very much a Socratic conversation, but just imagine beats. And it's it's not about responding to somebody. It's about sharing your narrative and then hashing out that thing in that space before you leave. And it's an ongoing dialogue. So I think I would develop those, and then also have ensembles that were like hybrid so that students can feel like they can engage and everybody doesn't have to play a trumpet or a guitar or drums. You can come with your digital stuff or you can rap or whatever so that you can share your voice. And I think those things are very important to give like students to know that's not right or wrong or just like black or white, but there's a lot of gray and gray is important too because like it creates shade and create shade creates definition and it creates a bigger sharper image you always think it's just got to be one or the other but i'm like the stuff in the in between the margins is like really the most juicy awesome stuff it's like the best part of the meal it's not the the best part of the burger isn't the top of the bun and the bottom of the bun it's all that stuff in the middle you know it's all that stuff in the middle and i think we kind of get lost in it so i would develop programs around responding to trauma and dealing with trauma and i would start in um a undergraduate program because I think if they're going to go out in the world, they have to be able to deal with their trauma and know who they are before they help somebody else. And I said this before, and I'm sure Jesse's heard this like five times this week. When you get on the plane and the plane's going down and the window pops out, the air, the, the people always tell you to put the mask on yourself first before you help somebody else. And so, like, if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to deal with your own trauma, know who you are, and that's like one of the key ingredients of hip hop is knowledge of self. The unexamined life is not worth living. That's what Socrates said. And so I think that these people, regardless of how you like their narrative, are struggling with who am I in the world, not in comparison to the world. And oftentimes we live in a comparison type world. 
you know, and I, I think that I would develop program a program around that in which, you know, we talk about agency and advocacy, which is something we never talk about, almost never in education. Somebody will, be, will disagree with me, but like very few schools do. And how to deal with that, because we do shooter drills, but what do we do after shooter drills? And what does that mean? And like, I'm a teacher and like, oh my God. And, you know, and being on a campus where that happened, you know, in Northern Illinois in 2008, we closed the school for like three weeks, like maybe a month. And we had all these debriefs. And then I, I thought to myself, that was kind of when it struck me. It was like, wow, there's so much trauma around being involved in school and we don't really talk about it enough. Um, and we have to develop programs that like speak to that. So I think that's what I would do. If I can go back in time, that would be what I would really focus on the most, dealing with trauma and using hip hop. Because it's not about rapping and making beats. It's the process that you engage in that like helps you develop knowledge yourself. The skill is a skill, but that allows you to explore who you are in the world. And that's really all music to me is allowing you to connect in ways in worlds that you might not have ever had. And then for you to like process that and then to go either I make new music or create something that shares my narrative because I've now seen these other templates. And I go, oh, well, you know, I think that would be really awesome. That's just my thinking about it. We have one final question for you that we ask of all of our guests. Yes. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Mm, I know. This is real easy. What I would do to strengthen democracy, I would put term limits on everybody in every office. And... I will, after the, I place term limits on everybody in every office, no matter who they are, I would also make the voting process easier. For instance, we were talking about I was away and so I couldn't do my ballot for uh, the election because I was gone like a whole week. I forgot to get the, the ballot. But like it should be easier to be able to voice your vote way easier and in ways that are not limiting. I think all the laws are used to keep people from voting, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. When it's a democracy, even a republic, you want people to voice their opinion, but you make it so hard to do because you feel like there's all of these fake news and different things. I think it should be so easy that you should be able to text or walk into Walgreens or a fire station anywhere in the country and just like push a button. It should be that simple because the way we have it now is keeping people from even, you know, sharing, you know, what they think and therefore like they're marginalized and therefore they're underrepresented and then the, the policies are then created to represent those who are in the majority that voted. And that's part of civic engagement is to get those underrepresented represented. So we need to make voting easier and we need to put more term limits on people. And also I, I think, um, beyond that it needs to be a cultural shift change where like it for me personally and this is my opinion there are too many older white men that are representing us and I think there needs to be a more of a call for representation so maybe that's another big thing I just think that one there need to be more women and there need to be more people of different colors and ethnicities because America is a as a patchwork quilt of beautiful stuff Dr. Jarrett Ahmed Shiel, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thank you. Jesse Rathgeber, thanks for being my co-host today. Well, thanks for letting me. It was, it was a joy. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. 
Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.